Thank you, Keith. I am very grateful for the work you're doing, the compassion and wisdom with which you shared this need to our congregation. I want to say to you, church, that the elders are 100% behind our partnership with this ministry of World Relief. We've been praying for Afghanistan, and now God is showing us one of the ways that we can be a part of the answer to those prayers. So I really encourage our church family to participate in this for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we've come to the grand finale of this letter. We've been in this letter for a long time, and I've been looking forward to this passage. In fact, it's one of the reasons I wanted to preach on Ephesians, uh, to be able to spend some time in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 6. So today we're going to kind of just get an overview of the passage, and then we're going to spend more weeks in this passage in the weeks to come. But let's open our hearts to the word of God, and may he open our eyes to see wonderful things in it as I read, beginning at verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, Righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. God, I pray that right now that you would give courage and boldness to me to open my mouth to speak of the mysteries of your gospel, that I would speak about it as I should, empowered, emboldened by your spirit. And I pray you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey the wonderful things you show us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1915... On the 1st of May, a great crowd of people gathered on a dock in New York Harbor to board the British ocean liner, the Lusitania. Just eight days earlier, the Imperial German Embassy in Washington, D.C. had posted advertisements in U.S. newspapers reminding Americans that Germany and Britain were at war. They warned anyone contemplating travel across the Atlantic that vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction and should be avoided. 
but the cautions were ignored and 1,959 passengers and crew boarded the ship. They enjoyed a leisurely cruise across the Atlantic with all the comfortable amenities, reaching the south shore of Ireland six days later. The British Admiralty warned the ship's captain that German U-boats were in the area and recommended evasive zigzagging tactics to avoid being spotted. But the ship's captain chose to ignore the warnings, and on the afternoon of May the 7th, the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German submarine. Seawater filled the faces and bodies of people who were on the deck. Children who were jumping rope were cast onto the ground. Within seconds, the ship listed to the right, and then within 18 minutes, it was sunk under the ocean, drowning 1,198 people, including 95 children and 39 infants. This precipitated the involvement of America in World War I. And the lesson for us is that when you're in a war zone and you choose to pretend that you're in a state of peace, you are very vulnerable to attack. When you're in a war zone and you pretend that you're at peace, you are very vulnerable to attack from the enemy. And Christians, God has made it very clear to us that when we are born again into his kingdom, we are born not into a picnic on a sun-soaked deck of an ocean cruiser. We are born into a war. We sang it this morning. We have an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. Verse 11 tells us he's a schemer. He's wily. He's studying you. He's got a file on you. He's plotting to take you down. The Bible says he's a wolf, but he disguises himself like a sheep. He's the prince of darkness, but he masquerades as an angel of light. He's the father of lies, but he knows the Bible better than most of us, and he specializes in subtleties and half-truths. He's a clever counterfeiter. He's a master manipulator with thousands of years of experience in using good things to entice us away from the giver of every good and perfect gift. And then he insinuates doubts into our hearts about the goodness of God. One of his favorite tactics is to fly under the radar. He specializes in subterfuge. He cackles undercover in a culture that believes everything can be explained in naturalistic terms. He's most menacing when people are least aware of his existence. And a church with a peacetime mentality is easy prey. One of the Puritans said, the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture to creep on a sleeping lion. So this morning, I want to do three, three things. First, I want to awaken us to recognize the intensity of our struggle. And secondly, I want to encourage us with the superior source of our strength. And then finally, I want to help us think realistically about what victory in this struggle looks like. So first, church, 
Let's wake up to the intensity of our struggle. We see it in verse 12. Paul orients us to reality here. He says, we struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Right away, Paul uses a word here for a wrestling match. That's what we're engaged in. And in this struggle, you cannot claim an exemption. You cannot escape the draft. We're all enlisted. And we shouldn't be surprised when the enemy attacks. Ian Duguid put it like this. There's a clear choice before us. And he said, the choice is not whether you will be a Christian soldier or a Christian civilian. The choice is whether you will be a prepared Christian soldier or an unprepared one. That's the only choice. And Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is written to prepare us. So let me ask you this morning, are you prepared to struggle in the Christian life? Is struggle part of the way you define the Christian life? Do you find that it's a struggle day after day to live for Jesus, to love people with the love of Christ, to say no to the enticements of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do you sometimes look at other Christians at church who seem like they've got it all together and read posts on social media where it seems like no one's struggling and wonder if you're the only one who falls flat on your face again and again and again in weakness and realizes how much you need Christ to help you or else you're doomed in this struggle. If, if, if you feel that way, if you struggle as a Christian, I want to assure you, you're not alone in this. Actually, it's the Christians who aren't struggling who have a problem. A Christian who is not struggling is actually sailing through torpedo-infested waters unawares. We need more struggling Christians, more Christians who are fighting the good fight of faith. Struggling is not a sign of weak faith. It's quite the opposite. And notice next in verse 12, we need to be clear who our struggle is not against. What does Paul say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now that doesn't mean we don't have any human enemies in this world. But it means that no human being is the ultimate source of our struggle. There is a capital E enemy behind all our enemies, and he is not made of flesh and blood. And knowing this changes the way we fight the battle we're in. It's a spiritual battle. The gospel of Jesus Christ is firmly opposed to trying to fight a spiritual battle with physical worldly weapons. The battle Ephesians 6 is talking about has nothing to do with the religious crusades of the Middle Ages. It is not like the Islamic jihads of today. This battle is not against flesh and blood. The enemy we are called to resist and oppose as the church is not the politicians in Washington. It's not the co-worker who gets on your nerves it's certainly not the Muslim from Afghanistan who moves into our community. These are all neighbors whom Jesus calls us to love and to welcome and embrace. And even if we do have a neighbor 
who is antagonistic toward us, what did Jesus say we are to do with our enemies? He taught us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And church, the fact that we do not struggle against flesh and blood also changes the way we view our conflicts with one another. In the church, sometimes it will be a struggle to love other Christians. It's not always going to be easy. But when you're struggling in a conflict with another Christian, you need to always remember your brother or sister in Christ is not your enemy. What have we been learning throughout Ephesians? We've been learning about how Jesus, how he killed the hostility that once separated us from one another. Through his blood on the cross, he made peace. He he took groups of people who were divided and alienated and reconciled us into one new humanity. We are called in this letter to make every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We are called to persevere in love with one another as Christ loved us. And in this passage, at the end of this letter, Paul is explaining why that is sometimes so hard to do. Why is it so challenging for churches to live together in unity and to persevere on mission for Christ? Why are there so many divisions and why do we get derailed from Christ's mission so easily? It's because, Paul says, we are being opposed. We have an enemy who's breathing down our necks with a sinister agenda to destroy the unity that the Spirit of God has created, to tear apart the bond of peace that holds us together. The devil hates what Jesus did on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus gave a fatal head blow to the enemy. Satan's got an aneurysm now in his brain from Jesus, and he knows that his time is short. He knows his doom is sure. And he's trying to do all he can in the meantime to overturn the results of Christ's victory on the cross. So listen, whenever you're feeling suspicious of another Christian, or jealous, or envious, or conceited toward another Christian. It's because Satan is trying to distance you from someone for whom Jesus died to make you close. Whenever a church splits in a rancorous division, look around for the footprints of the devil, because he's behind everything that divides us. Satan hates the unity Jesus died to create. And whoever sets himself on a course that brings division into the body of Christ is being inflamed by the devil and is carrying out his sinister schemes. Children, I'm really glad you're here this morning. Let me see a few hands of kids. Are there any kids in the All right, good. Then good to hear you singing in church today. And you've got a question on your worksheets. If you picked up one of those worksheets, there's a question that says in verse 12, who is behind all the struggles that we Christians have to live in unity and love with one another? And I bet some of you have already written the answer down on your pages because you got this five minutes ago. But maybe your parents missed out. Maybe they they tuned out. So for their sake, let me give you the answer and let's make sure we get this right. It's the enemy, the devil. That's the answer. To this question, the enemy, the devil, is underneath and behind everything that tears apart our unity. He loves to disrupt the mission of the gospel by dividing Christians from one another. 
There's one more thing we see in verse 12 about the intensity of our struggle. And it's that the devil has a vast and comprehensive army of agents. They're carrying out his nefarious schemes. What does it say we're battling against here? In verse 12, we're battling against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So it's a spiritual warfare we're engaged in against a malevolent network of satanic foes. And the problem is, they're not made of flesh and blood, but we are. We are no match for this enemy. As one writer put it, we are not principalities and powers or cosmic rulers. That's not us. We are ordinary, flawed, fallen, flesh and blood mortals. So what business do we have engaging in warfare against such a ferocious enemy? It sounds like we're outnumbered, outsmarted, outmaneuvered. And that's exactly what the devil wants us to think. He wants us to flee in fear, in cowardice. He wants to bully us into submission. He wants to taunt us to retreat from the scene of the battle. But that's not where the gospel of Jesus leads us. Do you remember what happened to Jesus right after he emerged from the waters of his baptism? He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to wage war against the devil. And Jesus prevailed. And if you are a baptized Christian, you are identified with Jesus. And in your baptism, God says to you, you are forgiven. You have eternal life. He says to you, you are saved by me. I am your savior. And he also says to you, you have an enemy, a foe. And he sends you into the world, not in your own strength, but in the strength of of Jesus, not to cower in fear before the enemy, but to say, like we sang this morning, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not what? We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So that brings us from the hard news of point number one about the intensity of our struggle into the glorious good news of point number two. Take courage from the superior source of our strength. Take courage, church. It's right there in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord. And in case we didn't hear it the first time, he adds, and by his vast strength. It's the same command God gave to Joshua when he was about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. What did God say to him? Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And now Jesus is our new and greater Joshua. He has led us into an exalted place where we are seated with him 
in the heavenly realms. We've been hearing that throughout Ephesians. He has given us victory over our greatest enemies of sin, death, and the devil. And now Jesus is leading us out to go into all the world and take possession of the world by making disciples of Jesus Christ among all the nations. So how do we be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength? Notice Paul does not say, get your spiritual act together, then you'll be ready to fight the devil. He doesn't say, do a rigorous inventory of your life and shore up every area of weakness, then you'll be strong. That's what we think God is saying to us sometimes. We think, I need to conquer this sinful habit. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to memorize more scripture. I need to get more serious about serving. I need to do more evangelism. Then I'll be strong. Then I'll be a victorious Christian. But that's not what God is telling us here in Ephesians 6. God is saying to us, look, you need to stop thinking so much about yourself. You need to stop thinking about your strengths and your weaknesses and your failures and your victories because your strength in this battle is not going to come from you. Your strength in this battle is going to come from outside of you. The Puritan William Gurnall encourages us that the outcome of the battle rests on God's performance, not on our skill or strength. Isn't that good news? The outcome of the battle rests on God's performance, not on our skill or our strength. So stop obsessing about your spiritual performance and become enthralled with the victory of Jesus. I love these words that I heard from Pastor T.J. Timms. He said, the greatest danger to our faith is not our weakness. The greatest danger to our faith is our supplemental strength. We cannot supplement the strength of Christ. Do you remember what we heard back in chapter 1 about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe? How Paul prayed we would know that immeasurable greatness of God's power in our lives? And then how did Paul go on to describe the immeasurable greatness of God's power? What is that power like? He said, it is like the mighty working of God's strength that he showed when he raised Christ from the dead. That's what God's power is like. And then listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Paul said, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Okay, so, so how high is that? Because we've been told that we're wrestling against these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavens. So, so how, is, how high is Christ in the heavens? Well, Paul says in verse 21 of Ephesians 1, that's far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And then he, he says in verse 22, quoting from the Psalms, and he subjected everything under Christ's feet. And he appointed him as head over everything. And why did he do this? What, what difference does this make for us? Well, Paul says he did this for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. 
So what we we see is that Jesus went down into the grave bearing the full weight of our sins and God's just wrath against our sins. And now our sin has been buried with Jesus. And our Savior has been raised. And he is exalted at the right hand of God, which is far, far, far above the realm of Satan and his powers. And where are we? We are seated with Jesus in that exalted position of authority. The same power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him in glory is now at work in us, in our struggle against the powers of darkness. So the devil is this mighty Goliath. And we're just these little Davids with these little puny weapons in our hands. But we come against him in the name of the Lord of hosts. We come against him in the name of David's greater son who sits on heaven's throne, who rules in the midst of his enemies. And what that means, church, is that the devil should be afraid of us, not we of him. Because we who once were under his tyranny and control are now united to the one who crushed him on the cross. And every time Satan looks at the church, we are a living reminder to him that his doom is sure, that his destruction is near. Every time he sees Christians standing their ground in the victory of Christ against his schemes, he realizes my days are numbered. When Satan sees a church loving one another and on mission for Christ, Satan sniffs the smoke from the lake of fire, and it really fills him with fury. He trembles when he sees Christians who are clinging to Christ as the source of our victory. And that's what it means to put on the whole armor of God. We're going to look at this in more detail in coming weeks. All I want you to see today is that it is the armor of God. It is God's armor. It was designed for and it's already been worn by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're going to see from the prophet Isaiah how Jesus is the servant of the Lord who put on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus' feet are the beautiful feet who came and preached peace to those of us who are far off and to those who are near. Jesus took the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. All of this is a comprehensive picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us, how Jesus went into battle on our behalf, how he released us from the guilt and shame of our sins. He's liberated us from the tyranny of Satan. He's destroyed the power of of the devil. And so when God says to us, here's my armor, put it on, what he's telling us is that everything we need for victory in this spiritual battle has been given to us in Christ. God hasn't held anything back. He's given it all to us in Christ and in the gospel. And if we put on this whole Christ and his armor, there's not going to be a single chink in that armor that Satan can penetrate. We are safe in the battle armed with Christ. So church, take courage from the source of your strength. Now lastly this morning, what I want to do in the few minutes that remain is get really realistic about what victory in this struggle looks like right here, right now, in the middle of the battle. This is our third point this morning. Think realistically about what victory in the battle looks like. Because we could be getting all triumphalist right about now, pounding our chests. We've got this. 
We can fight this. We can win this battle. And we could start thinking, there's not going to be another bruise or skirmish along the way. I'm going to, I'm going to be undefeated. I'm invincible. Here's where we need to put points one and two together. Point one was that we are in a fierce battle with a ferocious enemy. Point two was that Christ has gone into battle before us and he's won the victory. His power is the source of our strength. Now, where are we right now? We're in a time, he calls it the evil day here, when Satan is mounting a fierce counterinsurgency. He's trying to take back the ground that belongs to Christ. And he will not prevail. He knows his time is short, but just like a football team in the fourth quarter that knows they're losing, is determined to still leave blood on the field, Satan is trying to take down as many with him as he can. So what does it look like to walk in victory in this evil day? How do you put on the full armor of God when some days you feel like you can hardly drag yourself out of bed let alone remember what the armor of God is? How do you be a victorious Christian when you're harassed by the same temptations day and night? Sometimes you resist, but all too often you feel like sin has the upper hand. How do you do this? If it was easy to walk victoriously, we would not fail as often as we do. It is not easy. If there was some secret, some silver bullet some formula, some regimen of discipline that you could take up and know that I'm always going to win the battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We would do it, wouldn't we? But then who would get the glory for the victory in the end? Would we think it was Christ plus some supplemental strength from us? Let me tell you what it looks like to walk in victory in this battle. It looks like desperately clinging to Christ as a sinner, and knowing that your only hope for salvation is in him. And when Satan sees the saints desperately clinging to Christ as the total source of their victory, that's what makes the devil tremble. We're not being called here to achieve a victory for Christ. We are called to, to stand in the victory that Christ has already achieved for us. We see it three times in verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14. The command is simply this, stand in the victory that Jesus has already won. And we're not called to do this alone either. We see in verse 18 that we are to pray at all times for all the saints because we're in this battle together. No commander-in-chief sends his soldiers into battle alone. We are with one another in this. So what do you do if you've been knocked down? What do you do if you've fallen flat on your face and you're not even standing anymore? You call in the reinforcements. You go to your fellow soldiers and say, I need strength, pray for me. And you call out to your commander-in-chief and you ask him, would you strengthen me? Would you help me? Would you cause me to stand upheld by your righteous, omnipotent hand? There's something really vital, church, that we always need to remember. Sanctification in this life is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about the direction you're moving in. 
the Heidelberg Catechism, it's really realistic when it says, even the holiest men and women make only small beginnings on the road to obedience in this life. Just small beginnings. Sometimes we imagine that because God is holy and he hates sin, there's nothing that God cares about more than that we should always stand strong in our battle against sin and Satan. We think the worst thing in the world is when we fail because we've let God down. But listen, there's something God cares a whole lot more about than you always being victorious in every battle you face. God cares a whole lot more about your dependence on Jesus Christ than he does about your victory in every battle. And sometimes God will show his strength by giving you victory over a spiritual battle. Other times God will let you fall in order to teach you a more important lesson about how weak you are and about how strong his grace is. Because what God wants more than you succeeding in the battle, God wants you to know that he loves you just as much when you fail as he does when you succeed. His love for you is not based on your performance in this battle. And God is not a one bit worried whether his purpose for your life is going to succeed. God knows that the outcome of this war does not depend on your victory in battle. Your ultimate spiritual victory has already been won by Jesus. And Jesus' victory is the only victory that matters in the end. So depend completely on Jesus. Rely on his spirit. Sometimes God's going to let you get beaten and bruised and humiliated by your own weakness in the face of the foe. Because God has zero interest in turning us into proud, sufficient, self-sufficient sinners who think that our victory comes from anyone but Jesus Christ. What God wants more than anything is for us to depend desperately on Jesus. Just keep clinging to him. It makes the devil tremble. And as you cling to Jesus, you're going to realize God's going to get you to the end and he's going to rise you up with Jesus. And he's going to cause you to stand in his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. There's going to be a trace of sin or shame on you. You're going to hold your head high. You're going to look at your radiant Savior in the face who is the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. You're going to say, Jesus, you won the victory. You're going to give all glory to him. And the smoke of Satan's torment is going to go up forever and ever. That's what we're looking forward to. The battle belongs to him. He is our victory. So let's stand together and let's acknowledge him as our light and our salvation. Let's praise him for the victory that he has won for us. Join me in prayer. Lord, you are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? Lord, you are the stronghold of our lives. Of whom then shall we be afraid? When evildoers assail us to eat up our flesh, our adversaries and our foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. But you will cause us to stand upright because Christ has won the victory for us.
So we rejoice and we praise you, Lord, and we say you are our salvation. Amen.